If you have a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 to 18 this morning. That's Acts 12, 1 to 18. I want you to follow along as I read. Here's what it says. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Now on the very night that Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in light and shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought that he was seeing a vision. Well, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Now when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where many people had gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and to the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have happened to Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. You know, on July 4th, 1963, United Artists Studio released their summer movie, The Great Escape, which was based on a book by the same name, authored by Paul Brickhill. Now, Brickhill was a pilot in World War II for the British, and he was shot down over Tunisia, after which he was moved to a German prison camp. Well, the book recounts the story of the escape of a number of British and Canadian prisoners from the Stalag Luft III camp. Now, the movie adaptation of the book featured a number of top stars of the time, Steve McQueen, James Garner, Charles Bronson, Richard Attenborough, James Coburn and David McCollum, the guy who played in Man from Uncle, and uh, he died just uh, about a month ago. Well, in the movie, the man behind the Great Escape is RAF squadron leader Roger Bartlett. His plan is to dig three separate tunnels simultaneously, which he codenames Tom, Dick, and Harry. But where are they going to put the dirt? And how to keep the Germans from hearing them when they dig? Well, the problem with the dirt was solved by sewing pouches into their pants. The prisoners would then fill them up with the dirt from the tunnel and then empty them on the ground outside in the garden that they were tending. And as for the sound, 
Well, when the prisoners were digging below, others were singing in a choir above. Now, each person had their part to play in it. One was Bob Henley. He was the scrounger who was responsible for finding the materials on the black market for the escape attempt. Another was Lieutenant Colin Blythe, who was an expert forager who makes documents that the escaped prisoners would need. Well, after setbacks and difficulties, eventually 76 men go out in one night. Some of them are caught right away, but others manage to elude the searching Germans. One man hitches a ride with a truck, but the driver later turns him in. In another scene, two men who are escaping are getting ready to board a bus when they're stopped by German police officers. They ask them for their papers. Are you French? They ask in German. Jawohl, they respond. They look over the papers, and then speaking in French, the police officer tells them they can pass. Au revoir, monsieur. Au revoir. But then, as they go to step onto the bus, one of the police officers says in English, good luck, to which the escapee says, thank you. Oh, foiled. They make a mad dash, but they're eventually chased down and caught. Now, one of the best scenes in the movie involved the actor Steve McQueen. He manages to steal a motorcycle, and heading towards the Swiss border, he's being chased by the Germans. He has to get over the border fences, but uh, how to do so? Well, there's a hill right before him, so he guns the throttle on his motorcycle, he hits the hill, and he goes flying over the fence. Now, if you buy the DVD, you'll see that that scene is on the cover. Did you know, though, that they didn't use a stuntman for the motorcycle chase? That was Steve McQueen going airborne over the fence. Well, in the end, of the 76 escapees, only three made it to freedom. Almost all the rest, after they were caught, were taken out and shot. Now, The Great Escape is a great movie, and it's well worth renting, though you can see it for free on YouTube. Now, I thought about that movie while I was working on my sermon this week. For though, Peter escaped, for though Peter's escape, I should say, from prison didn't involve motorcycle chases or uh, tunnel digging, it was still a great escape that came as a result of the prayers of God's people and the work of an angel. Well, today, to appreciate God's power and control over our lives and his ability to deliver us from our enemies when we call out to him, we want to consider this portion of God's word this morning. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Open up our eyes and our hearts to respond to the message that will reassure us that you are in control of all aspects of our life. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what do we see in the text? Well, the first thing we see is the martyrdom of James, and that's found in verses 1 to 3. Now, the Collins Dictionary defines martyr as someone who is killed or made to suffer greatly because of their religious or political beliefs. A couple weeks ago, the terrorist group Hamas, which heads up the government of Gaza, uh, launched a multi-pronged attack on the state of Israel. Firing thousands of missiles and flying over the border fences in ultralight planes, Palestinian commandos attacked and killed civilians and took some 200 Israelis captive who they're holding as hostages. Now, according to the latest figures I've seen, some 1,300 Israelis and 2,200 Palestinians have died, with thousands more injured. The Israelis have given the Palestinian people in Gaza 24 hours to clear out of the area. I mean, where's 1.1 million people going to go? Egypt doesn't want them. Israel's at war with them. I mean, the only way to get out is by sea, and it's a long way to swim to Cyprus. Well, Hamas is telling the people to stay. If they do, thousands upon thousands will die. And when they do, the victims will be held up as martyrs who died for their faith. So will those terrorists who carried out the attacks on Israeli civilians. Now, whether or not it's a noble thing to die as a martyr depends on the cause for which you give your life. It's a noble thing to die as a Christian martyr for your faith in Christ. 
It's a tragic thing to die as a Muslim martyr because you're dying for a false religion and the next stop is not paradise, but hell. Well, we've already had one martyr in the church, Stephen, who was stoned to death after his testimony before the Sanhedrin. James will be the second recorded in the book of Acts. We read starting in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. You remember when James and John's mother came to Jesus with a request on behalf of her boys? By the way, the mother's name was Salome, and that was the sister of Mary. So John and James were actually first cousins to Jesus. Well, she came and asked Jesus just one little favor for her, his auntie. In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in the place of honor next to you, on your right and on your left but Jesus answered and said to them, you don't know what you're asking. And then turning to the brothers, he said this, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. And Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. My father has prepared these places for the ones he has chosen. Now it's interesting, James was the first apostle to die. John was the last. Both had to drink from that bitter cup of suffering. John had a very long ministry. He died in his 90s. But James had a short ministry. He probably was no more than 30 years old when he was put to death by Herod. William Whiting Borden was born into a wealthy family. His dad owned a silver mine in Colorado, and so he was set for life as the only son who would inherit the father's business. But in 19, or 1894, his mom uh, took him to hear R.A. Torrey preach at the Moody Church, and he ended up getting saved as a result. Well, after he graduated from high school at the age of 16, his parents sent him on a chaperone trip around the world. It, it was a result of that that he became interested in missionary work. So he went off to Yale and later to Princeton Seminary. He was deeply spiritual and a mature, had a maturity well beyond his years. Do you know he became the director of Moody Bible Institute when he was only 22 years old? And though he was from a wealthy family, he engaged in street ministry to bums. But his heart it was in missions. Specifically, he wanted to reach the Uyghur people of China, who were Muslims. So he went off to Cairo, Egypt, to study Islam and learn Arabic. But a short time after he got there, in 1913, he came down with cerebral meningitis. Three weeks later, he died. Now, a lot of people thought that William was throwing away his life when he announced that he intended to be a missionary. Even more thought so when he died before he even got started. Was his life that was cut short a waste? No, not in the case of William Borden, nor is it in the case of the Apostle James. Any life lived for Jesus, long or short, is a life well lived. And if after you live for Christ, you die for him, well, that's just the final gem put in the crown for the believer. Herod may have put James to death, but the timing had to be set by God in eternity past. Speaking to God, David said in Psalm 139, 16, he says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single one came to pass. In Revelation 1:18, Jesus says this, Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last, the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. No one can take your life from you unless and until Jesus puts his key into the lock and turns the tumblers. Until then, you're immortal. Look what it says. When he, meaning Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. That was during the days of unleavened bread. 
Now, if one dead apostle brought smiles to the Jews, two dead ones would bring shouts of joy. And since this Herod was a man-pleaser who was trying to court favor with the Jews, he nabbed Peter as well. By the way, I want you to notice that one wicked act always makes it easier to perform another one. That brings us to our second point in the text, though, the imprisonment of Peter. Now, I've never been inside of a prison, though as a pastor I've, done, I've gone to jails before to do some ministry. But I have known several pastors who've been prison chaplains. And they say when you go into a prison, there's all kinds of procedures that you have to follow, distances that you have to maintain, things that you can bring in, things you cannot, no birthday cakes with files in them. There's always that concern for safety and security. Now, the text doesn't specifically say so, but I would guess that Herod had already heard about the time that the disciples had been arrested by the temple guards, thrown into jail, and somehow, nobody knows how, they escaped. The very next day, they were back on the streets preaching. Well, this time, they weren't going to allow for any shenanigans. By the way, that's an Irish word that means funny business. We read starting in verse 4. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Well, you're not going to be going anywhere now, are you, laddie? Oh, yes, except for maybe to the gallows. See, Herod was intending after Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayers for him were being made fervently by the church of God. We sing that hymn, Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, that calls me from a world of care and bids me to my Father's throne, make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Or that other song we sing. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You know, the words of that last hymn I quoted were from an Irishman named Joseph Shivan. He had his shares of sorrows and sufferings. He had to drop out of military college because of his poor health, and then the day before he was to get married, his fiancée drowned. A few years later, subsequent marital plans were dashed again when the woman he was to marry died after a short illness. Well, Peter was in trouble, so the whole church was in prayer, intense, continual prayer. It says in Psalm 50, 15, Call on me in the day of trouble, God speaking. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you shall glorify me. So the church was not just knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. They were pound, pound, pounding on it. Lord, they beheaded James. Don't let them do the same to Peter. Lord, see. Lord, act. Lord, rescue. We are weak, but you are strong. We're asking you to provide a great escape. You ever seen that Dr. Seuss cartoon, Horton Hears a Who? Horton the Elephant picks up a, a clover that has a dust speck on it. But this is actually a, a tiny little planet, this speck. And on this planet, there's a tiny little man named Doc Hoovey, who Horton can not see, but he can hear because of his big elephant ears. So Horton hears him, but nobody else can. And so they think Horton the elephant is losing his mind, talking to a dust speck crazy. So they decide to rope and tie elephant, or, uh, uh, Horton the elephant, and then they're going to boil the dust speck. Well, what are they going to do? Horton speaks to Doc Hoovey and tells the people, or tells him that he has to get all the people to shout out as loud as they can with the hope that they'll be heard. And so they do. We're here, we're here, we're here. Finally, the combined voices break out and rise above their world so that everyone in the world beyond could hear their cries. 
Well, the unified cries of the church were echoing throughout the halls of heaven. And so the Lord decided to answer. That brings us to our third point, the rescue by the angel. Now, the church is gathered for prayer, and, and I would guess it was somewhat of a spiritual birthing room as the people were groaning and pleading with God to rescue Peter. The Bible says there's no discharge in the time of war, and there should be no discharge in the time of prayer. Battle stations, battle stations. I mean, who could be sleeping at a time like this? Well, Peter, for one. Look what it says in verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. The last time we saw Peter sleeping was in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, not only him, but James and John fell asleep also. You remember Jesus told them they needed to stay awake and pray because they were about to enter into temptation and they weren't ready. So Peter's doing it again? Sleeping when he should be praying? No, I don't think that's what we're supposed to be taking away from the fact that he was snoring away. I mean, would you have been sleeping knowing that the next day you're going to have your head chopped off? Well, you might be if you had already come to believe what Paul later would write in one of his letters. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. Go to sleep, Peter. Rest in Jesus. Remember that the last thing he said to you before he left was, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But how is the Lord going to get him out of this one? A commando raid using flashbangs, concussion grenades, and tear gas? Are the rescuers going to set their phasers on stun or for kill? Well, neither. It says, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up, quickly! And his chains fell off of his hands. Now the guards are still there. How come they don't see what's happening? You know, I have a friend who smuggled Bibles into China. He carried them in a suitcase uh, uh, and another one, two suitcases. One, he had the Bibles and the other, he had his clothes. And as he went through customs, the Chinese officials again and again would open up the suitcase that had his clothes, but not the one with the Bibles. But then, on one occasion, they opened the one with the Bibles and he thought, oh, that's it, I'm done for. They dug through, moving all the Bibles around, looking for contraband, and they didn't even notice that they were Bibles. Well, I don't know if the guards were asleep If they were, why didn't they awaken with a light? Or was it that the angel was invisible to them? But was Peter also invisible as well? You know, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn with a verse that sounds similar to this incident. It says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off and my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed the amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Now, Peter was not imprisoned in sin, but rather he was imprisoned for righteousness' sake. But his dungeon cell was also flamed with light, and his chains fell off, and he went free. Look what it says in verse 8. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought it was, he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. If you're familiar with that 60s television show, The Adams Family, do you remember when anyone would come to visit them? They'd come through the front yard, they'd open the gate, 
uh, or go to open the gate and the gate would open by itself. And then as soon as they walked through, the gate would close by itself and then the bar would slam down. Well, that's kind of what happened with Peter. It says, and then they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. Perhaps it was the very moment that uh, a cherry came by, hit a mud puddle and splashed water in Peter's face. I don't know how it happened. However it happened, and we read this, when Peter came to himself, he thought, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people we're expecting. So good work, angel. Mission accomplished. The great escape has been a success. Now the only thing he has to do is go back to the church and let them know that their fervent prayers have indeed been answered. That brings us to our next point, the shock of the believers. And this is verses 12 to 17. By the way, have you ever had God answer a prayer for you? For something that you'd been asking for, like maybe to get a job or a loved one to be saved or someone to be healed or some desperate concern you needed him to address? And then he answers it and you think, wow, he actually did it. I mean, sometimes we've wanted things and waited for things so long that we find it hard to believe that God would actually answer us. Well, evidently, we aren't alone in having that experience. Look at how the church reacted to the news of Peter's escape provided by God. It says, and when, they realize, when he realizes, Peter that is, that it was real and not a dream, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where the many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in the front of the gate. They said, you're out of your mind. I imagine it went something like this. Look, I know we've been praying to a sovereign, all-powerful God, asking that Peter might be released, but come on. It's not like God's actually going to answer us. Listen, Rhoda, you've been under a lot of stress, and we know that your imagination can run wild at times. So why don't you just take a deep breath, calm down, and come back with the others to pray? But she kept insisting that it's so. Maybe she said, I'm not off my meds. Peter's at the door. Well, they kept saying, well, it's his angel. You know, it was a belief at that time that each person had a guardian angel, so they probably thought that Peter had been killed and the angel had come to announce it. Well, yeah, he's gone from the prison, but not through death, but through rescue. We read in verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. There's that song they had in the 30s. You keep on knocking, but you can't come in. Come back tomorrow and try again. Well, when he had opened the door, when they had opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed. Now, this mixture of joy and wonder was one that was experienced by the people of Judea when the Lord rescued them uh, after the Babylonian captivity to bring them back into the land. Psalm 126, 1-6 gives voice to the Jew celebration when it says this, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues of joyful shouting. They then... They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again rejoicing, bringing with the sheaves. Well, when you wish upon a star, does your dream come true? No. But when you pray to an omnipotent God and it's in his will, your prayers will be answered. It says in verse 17, but motioning to them 
with his hand to be silent, he described to him how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and went to another place, obviously for his own safety. Well, the Jews were expecting to see Peter's head roll the next day. Heads did roll, but not Peter's, rather the guards. That brings us to our last point, the execution of the guards. That's verses 18 to 19. It says, Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. You know, the Roman army had a rule. If a prisoner that you were ordered to guard escaped, you had to pay the penalty that would have been imposed on them. Well, in this case, Peter's penalty was supposed to be death. And so Herod took, and after examining his soldiers, he sent them off to their death. Well, remember there was another time when uh, a similar thing happened. Paul and Silas were in jail in Philippi. And God had sent an earthquake, which caused all the prison doors to fly open. Well, the Roman jailer, thinking of the prisoners of having escaped, he took his own sword and he was about to plunge it into his stomach. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Don't harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and said, and um, after he brought him out and he said to them, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and you will be saved, you and your whole household. You know, my sister-in-law texted a prayer request to my wife and I just the other day. Her niece was having marital problems. So she left her husband and a few days later, he committed suicide. I mean, how sad that there was no one there to say, do not harm yourself. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Why did he kill the guards? They hadn't done anything wrong. I mean, shouldn't this great escape have made Herod stop and wonder and consider that maybe he's dealing with something supernatural? I mean, why didn't he see God working behind the scenes? It's because he wasn't looking for God. So he never saw him, just like many people today. Well, Herod is going to meet this unseen God in judgment just a few months later, as we're going to see in the story next week. But for now, I think we can make some lessons and draw them from this story. Here's the first one. This story tells us something about the power of God. The power of God. God is not limited by our circumstances, nor by our difficulties. He can deliver in any situation. And we need to trust Him no matter what comes. We need more people like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who when Nebuchadnezzar demanded that they bow to his idol, confidently replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. We've had a lot of pastors over the last couple of years who've been intimidated by government officials threatening to find them if they don't close their church down. And rather than stand bold, they buckled. And there's going to be a lot more pressures coming upon the church in the days to come to support immoral lifestyles, to celebrate things that are wicked. And if we don't, we're going to pay a price for it. But we need to believe that God is still in control and has the power to deliver us anytime he wants. I think the second thing that's learned from this story, though, is the importance of prayer. I mean, if the church hadn't been praying, Peter would not have been rescued. 
God not only declares the end that Peter would be rescued, but the means that it would come as a result of prayer. And so we have to pray and pray and pray some more. And this is one of the great weaknesses of most churches, that they have very little prayer time that's going on. And it should be a corporate prayer, not just individual prayer. Well, there's a third thing that we learn from this text, and that's something of the mysterious will of God. I mean, Peter was rescued as a result of the church praying. But wasn't the church praying when James had been arrested before he was martyred? You can be sure they were. Did God answer their prayers then? Yes, he did. And the answer was no. It wasn't Peter's appointed time to die, but it was James' appointed time. So live or die, we still need to trust the Lord. And if we do, we will have a great escape from the troubles of this life. Or from all the troubles of this life when he takes us home to heaven. Either way, God will provide a great escape. Now, I began with the movie, I want to end with the same. You know, the actor who did that motorcycle scene, Steve McQueen, uh, he had a hard life growing up. He was abandoned by his father when he was very small, and his mother was an alcoholic who married several times, and each time the stepdad abused him. He got into trouble as a young man. He ended up on a prison chain gang for a while. Uh, and another, for uh, another segment of his life, he was a towel boy at a whorehouse. Now, though he had a very successful acting career, he had three failed marriages. And his first wife had an abortion during the time they were married. Well, he died back in 1980, 50 years of age, from a rare tumor that was eating away at his body. Now, at the time, he was living out in Arizona or New Mexico, I'm not sure. But six months before he got the cancer diagnosis, someone who had befriended him started witnessing to Steve McQueen. And he became a Christian at that time. Near the end of his life, he told his pastor, Leonard DeWitt, he said, you know, my only regret is that I was not able to tell more people about what Christ has done for me. You see, in the movie, Steve McQueen's character gets caught by the Germans. He doesn't actually escape. But in real life, Steve McQueen did make the great escape. He escaped the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And now in heaven even the presence of sin. And he did so simply by trusting Christ, which is what you can do as well if you trust in his death as the payment for your sins. He will not only forgive your sins, but walk with you through this life until the day that he takes you home. May God give you the grace to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and God, I thank you. I thank you for the story that we have in the Bible here. And I thank you for that story with Steve McQueen. The scripture says there's not many who are rich and noble who are saved. People who are famous. But you do save some. And we pray that you'd save more. And we pray that you'd save people through hearing this sermon. Because you are the God who provides the escape that we need the most, which is from sin and your wrath. So bless us now to that end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.